This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. It's important to remember that this was for a classroom setting um, where students would have to debate these theses. Um, so even as this introduction says, the language is at times maybe exaggerated. Um, another thing to remember is that we are getting one side of the conversation, so not everything will always be immediately clear because um, we're being thrown into the thick of the kind of debates that were happening in 1517 Wittenberg. Um, so if something isn't clear to you, that's fine. It's kind of as it should be. Um, I'll, I'll just say, start with the conclusion, which I think is very interesting. It says, in these statements, we wanted to say and believe we have said nothing that is not in agreement with the Catholic Church and the teachers of the church. Um, I think Luther believed that, but it's also a rather humorous thing to say at the, the end of this disputation, which basically says everything that we're teaching right now about human nature and how God looks at us is mostly wrong. <laughs> um, so why did he say that? Um, Luther, he was deeply Catholic. Cover his tail a little bit? Yeah, he probably covered his tail a little bit. Um, he, did he appeal to some old councils? I know he did that in other places where he'd say, well, 1215, so-and-so said such-and-such, where they were divided against themselves. Yeah. They do that, I don't know if that's what he did here. He did that with indulgences. Yeah. I don't think he mentions the council here, but that, that is an important move for him in being able to say, look, even the church councils, these things that we approve of, and Luther... You know, thought church councils were important, but he could say they disagreed, and if they can disagree, that gives us space to also disagree and to dispute things. Um, so, starting with Theses 4 to 7, um, what do you think Luther is really trying to get out here in what he's claiming about um, the scholastic view of human nature? Is there anything that particularly sticks out to you. I thought of it as his, uh, I thought it was an interpretation of his usage of Matthew 7. Um, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And he interprets that in a universalizing way by saying, every human is a bad fruit. For every bad tree, therefore, every human bears bad fruit. Yeah. Mm. That was interesting, because he just basically ignores the good tree part of it. Right. Um, and universalizes The tree will come from the root of the stump of Jesse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to bring all of our horticultural references together. Right. Yeah. That'd be one good tree. Yeah, I mean, he's, all that he talked about with freedom, he just sort of putting his card on the table saying, it ain't, it's not there. Mm. Freedom. Bondage. Yeah, and so... Like Dave just said, it is starting from this point of Matthew 7 of saying this, this image of the bad tree is universalized, and that is all where we start. Um, 
So in Thesis 5, it's interesting, he says, it's false to state that one's inclination is free to choose between either of two opposites. Indeed, the inclination is not free, but captive. Um, and if you're working with an alchemist view or account of human freedom and human nature, what do you hear when Luther says that? Fighting words. <laughs> it's fighting words because it's saying, on our account, we're not humans anymore. <laughs> He's denying the fundamental thing that makes a human a human. Um, saying it is, it's not within your power or by your nature to be able to go to the left or the right, to choose good or bad. Um, or as he says in Thesis 6, um, you can't by nature conform to correct precept. Your, your mind and your will cannot conform and grasp and come to proper um, ideas, proper even doctrine, we might say. Um, and then if you move on to... Hey, quick question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. So was the common interpretation of Matthew 7 back then in that day, or according to uh, Occam, um, kind of like what it is today <laughs> in the sense that like... Like Jesus is saying, all right, there's, this is how you can be a bad tree, and this is how you can be a good tree, and so let's go ahead. He's like trying to, quote unquote, like encourage you to be a good tree. Right. Yeah. It's Instead of just telling you you're a bad tree. Like, yeah. If you really hear this, you just realize you're screwed up. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question, because in, in the gospel text, it's almost saying, you know, we'll work from the, the fruit back to the tree. Uh -huh. Um and I, I think that would have been an easy distinction for the scholastics to make is saying, you know, you could kind of do it based on how God looks at you. If God has infused that grace on you and has looked upon your works to give them value, then you would be a good tree. Um, and you could look exactly like a bad tree because uh, everything could be the same. But your, your, your value as a good tree would just be based on God's choice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. If we go to theses, um, theses 16 to 18, um, we see a, he's going further and sort of um, undoing what human nature can do again here. Um, because as we talked about with, with the scholastic view, if you're free to do everything by your pure, natural reason, you could love God. You could? You could. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that didn't necessarily save you, but it was something that you could do by yourself. Um, whereas here we again start to see a development of Luther's theology towards a view we see in the bondage of the will or um, Luther's exposition of the first commandment in the larger catechism where he talks about how you know, the, the, the commandment says you shall love God um, but we as humans by our nature being turned in, in on ourselves we always produce our own idols we look for the good in other things um, so it's, it's an interesting and sort of radical move here uh, which might sound kind of commonplace to us, but just saying you can't love God on your own. This is not within your power. 
Um, it says in, in Thesis 17 even, humans are by nature unable to want God to be God. Yeah, even the desire part, the yeah. concupiscence gets pulled in. We don't even want to want him to be God. Um, yeah. He even puts that extra hedge around. Yeah, exactly. Where did, did, did Luther ever say, I mean, is it his quote, let God be God? I know that's like one, I read a book a long time ago, and he called that a summary of Lutheran theology. Mm -hmm. Did he ever say that, or is it just taken from here to... I think he, I, I, I'm pretty sure he does say that somewhere. I can't think of it um, off the top of my head. I'll look at that. It sounds like something he would have said because of um, the emphasis on how, as it were, faith creates the divinity, and we have to we attribute um, I essentially God's self to God, and when we have faith. Um, but another part of that would be saying, as we turn outwards from ourselves, we are letting God be God, rather than claiming those, uh, those powers for ourselves. Um, are we, how are you feeling on these theses so far? Is everything, you feel fairly clear on this, these first two groups? I love them, they move my soul. <laughs> really, I mean, I, mean, I, I get enlivened by them. I mean, even like number 18, to love God above all things by nature fictitious term of chimera, as it were. Yeah. And I'm like, there's a part of me that just gets enlivened by it. Mm. I mean, just the relief. Of course, yeah. it's all a part of it, but just be able to say that it's not true. Yeah. It's a fiction. It's a chimera. It exists only in literature. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And then to find out, you know, we don't know the story yet. He hasn't used the word gospel. Yeah. It's really something I don't want to get devotional yet. Don't want to get what? Devotional yet. Oh, hey, if you, if you ever want to drop a devotional. I know it's, and it's, it's almost, we don't know each other yet, but there's nobody arguing the opposite. Like, well, of course we can love God above all things. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's interesting, I mean, I know we didn't read number eight. Um, yeah, and feel free to bring up. And I know this is early Luther, so there's not a lot of developed sophistication yet. But he seems to use the word essentially evil as in distinction from nature. He's saying, or without a sophistication, he's saying humans were not created. Adam and Eve were not created with evil nature, but after the fall, we have evil nature. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go through that kind of uh, development, but he is trying to say there essential evil is different from natural evil somehow. And um, I mean, I'm a Presbyterian, so Westminster has a whole chapter on free will. The original man was created with free will, but we no longer have it. Yeah, uh, I think that's important because let's start, let's lose this theology be too all fall um, all the time. I think that he, I think he's just being realistic. Mm -hmm. I guess is what I would say. And it's also important that he never claims that God creates evil. Right. Um, so if the if the will itself is essentially in its essence evil, you would be claiming something about the work of God's um, creation. And that would be a bad move. Right. Um, and he's you know, sort of moving in this Augustinian tradition like he, he brings up uh, Manichae, right. Manichaeism. It is important to say that we don't believe in this kind of dualism in itself. There are dualisms in the world, 
but it's not one of that's located in our human nature, as it were. So. Um, in thesis 21 and 22, does everybody know um, what concupiscence is? I don't. Would anybody like to com explain what concupiscence is? Gil wants to. Gil. Oh, dude, I just love to explain concupiscence. It's Gil's power. <laughs> and we would love to hear it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's the desire, the sinful desire. It's not the action. It's the, it's the thing beneath the action which drives us. And so sin is not known by its fruit. Sin is even beneath the fruit to the heart. Mm -hmm. so the, the, the desire above all things. We're, we're, we're at, the, at the level of the will, just just above the heart. Tend to keep us in. Isn't that related to the whole tinderbox thing? The, the tin, like the, yeah, that's what Dr. Noel was saying, like the tinderbox, like it's the it's the makings for it there, you know, it's oh, to, yeah, get, yeah. to get the fire yeah, going. Yeah, you're right. Like that was the old language for it. So the material for the tinder, yeah, 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 like yeah. the fire Sorry, starter yeah. before the fire, yeah, mm -hmm. that's good, I forgot about that. Was that a term ever conflated with sexual immorality? Oh, yeah. That's what I thought. But it's not only sexual immorality. No. Right. That's where it's often, isn't that right? Yep. It's often taken just lust. Right. The desire, the lust for control. It's for a better cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the connection with sex, it's, it's very prevalent because you think, well, what do you do? Well, what's going to be on you know, all these guys who decide right. to be monks? Living by themselves. <laughs> what's I mean? What's going to be on their mind naturally? Like, what's the thing you're going to have to fight against? Um, and and, it, and it, it was important for Augustine because Augustine obviously had his own sort of battles with sexuality. Um, Did not Augustine also think that any sexual act was inherently immoral, even to procreate? Easy, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I. Did he? Or no, maybe it was somebody else. It was one of the church fathers. I'm sure one of somebody said that. I don't want to claim that for Augustine. Yeah, but. Well, I think it affected, I think it affected Catholic views of propagation. I think he said, we're getting off, but like basically close your eyes and do it if you have to. <laughs> kind of act like it's not there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Luther's an Augustinian monk, so it's, yeah. I think it's matters. Um, yeah. Um, you're, you're obviously free to have sex as long as you're married, so. <laughs> um, Gil explained uh, concupiscence, I think, extremely well. Um, this idea of concupiscence, that we have wrong desire seated in our will, was very important for Luther, and it's a lot of what, um, there was a lot of debate about concupiscence in relation to original sin, what happens in baptism, what happens in repentance, so forth and so on, because from the view that Luther and Melanchthon were fighting, um, concupiscence was basically something that was snuffed out in baptism, and from then on, any sort of sense of concupiscence um, wasn't something that you had to repent for. You repented for actual sin. You repented for when you acted on that concupiscence um, because the concupiscence itself was forgiven um, and that was sort of done. 
not, I'm not making all the technical distinctions, but for Luther, he'd say, no, that concupiscence is there. It's something we always have to repent of. It's something we always have to fight against. Um, both original sin, as it works itself out in concupiscence, and actual sin, which is the outworking of concupiscence, are things that we have to repent for. Um, so this concept is important. And if you ever dig into um, the confessional writings, like the Augsburg Confession, or um, the confutation of the Augsburg Confession, which is the Roman Catholic response, um, you'll see that this distinction between original sin and actual sin was extremely important. Um, and in, we'll get to a thesis in a few, um, I don't remember where it is actually. Um, no, maybe it's in the 95 Theses where Luther basically says you have to hate um, the inner self. Like that is, that is part of repentance is hating this fact that um, your will is stained by original sin and that this concupiscence is not something that you can ever get rid of. Even if it is a basic transliteration, what is the Latin word for concupiscence? Concupiscentia. Is it that? Is it's it like concupiscentia kind of thing? Yeah. Kind of thing? yeah. Okay. And, uh, I should be quiet. I don't know that. No. Feel, for, feel free. I'm writing it down. Exactly the same now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this claim in Thesis 21 is really moving Luther towards that view of bringing together original sin and actual sin, because he says, no act is done according to nature that is not an act of concupiscence against God. Um, so we can't sidestep this concupiscence to get around it to where only sort of the things we actually do are sinful, because there's always this intrinsic link between the original sin and the will, and as that acts, it's, works itself out in actual sin. Gosh. Yeah. It's so relevant for today, mm -hmm. and the way we preach about behavior modification. Yep. Yeah. It's a tacit medieval Catholicism yeah. in the way that we preach about um, being good Christians. Yeah. We, don't, we don't define this theology, we don't label it, we certainly wouldn't say we believe it, but we preach like we do. Mm. It's crazy. It's right to, well, God doesn't want you to not be happy. I mean, he's not going to think it's bad that you just want a nicer house or, you know, it's, it's all right there. God don't make no junk after all. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing, how relevant to this. Yeah. It's, it's such a, like, high view of self, low view of yep. God. That's a good way to put it. what it is. Yep. High view of self, that's right. Yeah. And it's... And at least in my experience, it's interesting how this works itself out in popular, not popular, but just the Christianity you find in you know the normal church you go into. Um, last year, I taught six weeks on the Heidelberg Disputation for adult ed, which was really enlightening because you get some people who are fully on board, like, yeah, even my best works are you know sinful against God, and you know, yeah. like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some some, pe some people are, re are ready to get that and say, I suck, and let's move on. And uh, other people are so concerned by that. And at least in my experience, you often find this distinction between nobody really understands what the will is, but they understand maybe I thought something bad, 
but that's okay because I didn't actually do anything bad. And once you allow that sort of distinction in, which is sort of analogous to this, you get people who say, well, I don't think I need to repent because I, I didn't break any of the Ten Commandments. In our, and I think about that a lot on the ground in our liturgy as pastors try to teach people to how to confess their sins. And, and in, our, in one of our services, we give space for reflection. And I've realized I need to coach that more because I, I, for years I've been getting a lot of guys in my men's Bible study who are going, why do we confess our sin every week? I don't... Yeah. Struggle with sin. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't lust the way I used to. I'm yeah. 80. I'm 80 years Whoa. old. That's good, man. And, uh, and I'm realizing that you know Keller gave yeah. Keller gave me three really good categories that I try to teach through now. Just 30 seconds. Boom. We're gonna have a confession of sin. Repent from your works. Your sins of commission. Your sins of omission. And repent of your right works done with wrong motivations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm really trying to teach our very. Pharisaical right wing church, what that last category is supposed to look like. Yeah. It's hard to bore down to, but it really has its roots here. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's a good point about confession within the liturgy. Yeah. Um, you know, where I come from in the Lutheran church, we start every week with, con- with the rite of confession and absolution. Um, and people won't hear what's said unless, yep. unless you bring it to them, because we start out. Uh, you know, with the collect for purity, Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Like, that's where we're starting at, yep. is this sort of deepest level. Yep. But people, people won't make that connection immediately. Um, and you try to keep knocking it in, because then you go to 1 John. Far, we, we, we go to 1 John and say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then people are still like, okay, maybe. Yeah, but the big sins I used to struggle with, I don't now because I'm 80 or I'm 70 and yeah, I'm just tired. Yeah, I'm just yeah. tired. <laughs> so I'm not a sinner because I'm tired. But uh, I watch cable news, I watch Fox News all day every day, and I'm a really angry, fearful person. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, so that's where I'm trying to go. That's yeah. And that, that, is, that is a difficult thing, and we'll, we're going to talk more about that when we get to the 95 Theses and just how do we teach repentance? How do we think about that in pastoral care? Um, because you know, As I move through our liturgy of confession, we, we start by praying to God to cleanse our hearts. And then we say, if you say you don't have sin, you are deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. And then what we all pray together um, is most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. <laughs> we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not, you know, all of these things. Um, so the right of confession, I think, in most churches that have that is trying to point to you this distinction doesn't work, that every sin you do is an outworking of... Um, Mm-hmm. a corrupt and hardened heart that needs to be broken and made new by the Holy Spirit. But it has to be our responsibility to help people to see that. And that is difficult, I think, for people of every age. Um, so, And it speaks to something in pastoral leadership that, you know, I, I 
this young evangelical who made this move to, yeah, more liturgy, always better. And then realizing that liturgy actually can't carry that completely. Yeah. Uh, because people are going to miss this one. Yeah. Yeah. I've found in pastoral care that evangelicals don't like the focus on that you're still a sinner. Right. You know, they, they, I've had a lot of people, when I made that transition theologically, that would come to me and say, you know, it just seems like it's so pessimistic, you know, and we're saints, and we're, you should just focus on that, yeah. you know, not on the fact that we're sinners, you know, and uh, part of me would agree with that and to an extent, but then when you talk about that and gospel implications, it's like they're, they're not hearing that, they only heard this, and then, so I found that to be kind of difficult with, with uh, evangelicals sometimes. Mm -hmm. That, and maybe it's some carryover to just like the aversion to anything reformed within a lot of evangelicalism. When you start to talk about stuff like that, that they just immediately almost shut off. Mm. Total depravity. Light goes on and they go off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of popular evangelicalism, especially you know, where I'm in my part of the Bible Belt, as I'm sure in other places. Um, I don't know exactly what those Calvinists believe, but I don't want to be. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't what? But I don't. I don't want to be associated with it. Yeah. So if they if 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 they believe in total depravity and I'm just this terrible, awful human being, well, then we're going to focus on um, this idea that I'm a saint. And but see, that's what you're saying. Luther started with mm. was the idea of sin, mm. and I think you always have to start with the sin. You're a sinner. And that's what Luther was purporting and teaching. And, uh, that's where he started. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that they would disagree with that. They just, they, they think we've moved past it. Right. The gospel is to get you in. Right, exactly. But then you got something else happening. Right. You get it again. It's just once and for all. Which is fairly consistent with the do more, try harder, be better Christianity. Yeah. At least it's consistent. Back to focusing on the fruits. Yeah. I, I have what is in myself now as a, as a saint, and that is, I mean, it's kind of like I've received the So just do what you can. The proper merit. That'll yeah. make up the rest. Yeah. Exactly. And it's an interesting move because if you say, I haven't broken any of the Ten Commandments, therefore I'm okay, or I'm a saint, let's focus on that. It really becomes, I think, another form of just looking to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's another ex way that we just turn in on ourselves to say, this is where my salvation is rooted. Works. Yeah. It goes back to what I can do. Mm -hmm. By the way, that is a Latin compu compu uh, that compuescence <laughs> is a Latin derivation. So I did find that. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of relevant to the, the discussion, but a few months back I was on the Vatican website reviewing some stuff about the evangelicals and Catholics together, like kind of thing, things they agreed and disagreed on. And it's, I found it quite interesting that they were able to talk away the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And like basically say we're beyond this, we're we're good, we're you know we're good on this. But there were two things, and I forgot the 
the second one because the first one was just stuck out to me so much. There were two things that they could not get beyond, and that was Luther's symbol, uh, symbol uses at Vector, that we are at the same time righteous and sinners. Yeah. And they had a little paragraph on that about how these things are basically the Roman Catholic Church had a statement saying, no, these things are utterly opposed to one another, and there's no way that you can be both at the same time. They just, and to me, I found it shocking because it's like this was a group that was doing their best to try to get beyond it, and they couldn't get beyond that one thing right there. It's just like, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I have actually a question related to that, which sure. is, it seems like early Luther is still kind of operating, at least by the Catholic definition of what grace is. I mean, he eventually goes to like justification where it's a declaration, but he's still kind of operating at least on this idea that grace is a substance, yeah. that it's something that still kind of comes to you. There's something substantial to it, yeah. which actually is what overcomes this original sin, but eventually he, he moves away from that a little bit, doesn't he? Yeah, it, it goes from being grace is this infused thing to grace is favor day. It's this. It's the favor of God in looking down on us in justification to declare us. Right. Because thesis fifty five. Fifty five. The grace of God is never present in such a way that it is inactive, but is a living, active, right. and operative spirit. Mm-hmm. Not really. Uh, but <laughs> on that one, it seems to take a substantial view of grace. Like it's yeah. something. It, it's funny Pretty because weird. in the Romans commentary. He says almost that exact same thing, but he, it's about faith. <laughs> right. Um, which is kind of an interesting distinction. Mm-hmm. But this is all happening around the same time, so we probably can't read uh, too much into that. Um, Help me understand 55, though. I mean, we just commented there, the grace of God is never present in such a way that it is inactive. Explain the inactive part. I think it goes on to say, but it is living, active, and operative. So it just says it's. What what, what does he mean when he says it's inactive? Fifty-five. What do you th- what do you think he's trying to overturn? Like overturn there? What what is he? What what do you think is the opposition in this thesis? He's the arbitrary view of. God is mm. saying God could bestow His grace or take it away, or um, right? I mean, as far as the the two different kinds of uh, merits you wrote on the board, congruent and condign. Yeah, um, it feels like he's trying to say the grace of God does something; mm. it never doesn't not do something. Yeah, uh, as opposed to it having a possibility to to be condign. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at the thesis above, it's kind of what you said. It says, for an act to be meritorious, either the presence of grace is sufficient or its presence means nothing. Um, and it seems like in a lot of ways that is trying to do away with that arbitrariness of um, whether grace is going to be present, whether it is going to be doing something. Um, Who's Gabriel? Um, yeah. Yeah, Beale. He uh, there's a footnote in here somewhere that kind of gives some of the basic biographical details. But he was a scholastic. Yeah, there you go. Um, He was one of the important alchemist um, philosophers, or one of the important scholastics. He died like seven years after Luther was born. Um, But his his thought is basically what we talked about right before we got to all of this stuff. Thank you.
courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.